Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Dr. John Zahina Ramos of Just One Backyard to talk about his search for food sustainability. John is a scientist who researches the environmental, ecological, and economic benefits of urban agriculture. He recently published a book entitled Just One Backyard, One Man's Search for Food Sustainability that describes his journey from his family's Iowa farm to a major metropolitan area and how that journey reflects society's transition from homegrown to industrialized food production. In the book, he lays out indisputable facts that demonstrate just how beneficial urban food growing is to the local community, the nation, and the world's food supply. His book has been recognized as a notable 100 book for 2015 by Shelf Unbound magazine, and the ebook edition has been awarded first place in self-published nonfiction by the prestigious Writer's Digest magazine. Welcome to the show today, John. Thanks. You bet. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. I was born and raised in Iowa, and my mother was off the farm. Her father homesteaded a piece of Iowa prairie in eastern Iowa back in mid to later 1800s, and my mother was born and raised on that farm, and she took us out there as children, and so we always had a connection with food growing in our family. And I was raised mostly on homegrown and locally grown food. And an interesting thing about my grandfather and I is we were born about 100 years apart from each other. And he came here from Germany, and he lived the old world style. And uh, unfortunately, he was my grandparents were all dead before I was born. But mm-hmm. I had aunts and uncles that were born in the late 1800s, and they also lived what I would call the old world style. They didn't have a lot of modern conveniences. Uh-huh. They grew all their own food, and they canned their own food, and they ate all local food. And when I was a child, I would go out and we would visit these aunts and uncles, and it was a curiosity to me. It was somewhat like visiting a, a living history museum in a way. 
But the thing that really uh, stuck in my mind was that I had an aunt and her entire backyard was a food garden. Oh, nice. And it was a literal kitchen garden Uh where the back door of her home went out from her kitchen directly into the food garden. And she had no grass. It was all flowers. It was all vegetables. And she grew all the food that her family needed in her backyard in terms of vegetables and fruits. And she got the meat off the farm. So I started to think about that a few years, some years ago. I was living in West Palm Beach, and I had a new home. Uh, it was actually a rundown home uh-huh. that I had bought uh, to do renovations on, and it had nothing but a sand lot with weeds. And when I looked around the yard, I thought, what am I going to do here? I don't want to put grass in because we do have water problems down here in South Florida, of the water supply problems. We're constantly going into droughts and having water restrictions. So I decided to not have any grass. So the front yard went into low maintenance landscaping, but the backyard, I looked at it and I thought, what am I going to do? I, I love my vegetable garden, but how absurd would it be to turn the backyard into a big vegetable garden like my aunt, right? And so that idea sort of festered in my mind for a bit. And I thought, oh, yeah, I would love that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the scientist in me kicked in and said, you know, if you're going to do that, you might as well measure everything that you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, measure all the benefits because people were telling me down here, you know, in this climate, it's so hard to grow things because of sandy soil uh, and the, the heat and the humidity and the bugs eat all the plants up. And you know, I've had people tell me they spent $20 on a tomato plant and caring for it, you know, between the potting soil and fertilizer and everything else that they bought. And they got four tomatoes off of it or five tomatoes. So the amount of money that they spent trying to grow food for themselves, mm-hmm. it just wasn't worth it. And I set out to sort of examine that from a scientific perspective. So that's what brought me to where I am today with this whole benefits of urban agriculture thing. Uh-huh. Now, you're, and you're a scientist behind all of this. So how does that manifest itself in the work that you do? Well, I've had a strong background in ecological research. Uh-huh. I worked for Duke University School of the Environment for almost seven years, supporting research in the Florida Everglades. And I saw firsthand how to do research and how to do ecological research and what to measure, how to measure, and the standards that had to be implemented in order to make it acceptable. And from that background, it really was something that I found I was, it was, an, I was a natural for. I love data analysis. I love looking at things like that, getting my hands in the dirt and answering questions. Uh, so it was just easy for me to take something that was so much a part of my heritage and my being, which is growing food in my backyard, and then combine that with my love for doing research and looking at data and being analytical. It was just a marriage made in heaven. Fantastic. So out of that, you, you wrote a book called Just One Backyard, One Man's Search for Food Sustainability. And that's, is that the culmination of this research that you've been doing? And how, how do those interact? It is. It's, it's one of the culminations, if that's such a word. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, just made it up, so we're good. Yeah. Uh, at the time that I started my backyard garden and research, 
I was also beginning a doctorate degree, which is kind of crazy to, you know, take that much on your plate at once. But oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I started into my doctorate degree, and my degree was going to be in geoscience based on biogeography, environmental restoration. Mm-hmm. And that was fine and well, but it was something that I had done for a career for over 20 years. And to be honest with you, I was a bit bored with it. <laughs> and I started my doctorate at 48 years old. And I said to myself, I am not going to put myself through this if I'm not going to enjoy this and have fun. So I went in and I sat down with the chair of the department and I said that what I just said to you, you know, I, I just am not, this is not fun for me. I'm not enjoying this. Like I think I should be and like I want to. And he said, well, what, would, what else would you want to do besides, you know, environmental restoration? And I said, well, I have this backyard food garden. <laughs> nice. We got into a good discussion, but then at the end of it, he said, that's a nice idea. He said, but why would anybody care? And I stopped and I thought, sure, why would anybody care? It's something that I'm thrilled about, but it has to be something that's important for people. And it's got to be something that they would be invested in if they're ever going to do it. And so where my dissertation took me was to do a survey in the community, to do a questionnaire and interviews of hundreds of people in the community and sit down with them and say, what What do you grow? Do you grow anything? Mm-hmm. What? grow it how important is it to you did your parents grow food did your grandparents grow food what kind of a background are you from how much do you grow what do you think the dollar value of that is and so I had to sit down with people and really talk about their story and see what it was that was important for them and what drove them to grow their own food and then I took that information and combined it with the data coming out of my own backyard Uh with how much could you grow and what does that mean to the environment, to the ecology, the urban ecology, and what that means to our um, local economy. So all of that taken together, it's a pretty robust story. And when I finished my fifth year of collecting data out of my backyard food garden, I, I wondered about what form will this take? I could have gone the journal route and published it in agricultural journals or something like that. But I thought, you know, I've I've been in academia long enough that I know that you can publish these things and then they go into journals and they go into bookshelves and nobody sees them. Or 10 people read it. Or 10 people read it. And the fact is, is it's stuff that the average person needs to know and see and understand if it's going to make a difference in the world. So instead of writing an academic book, I wrote a general interest book, a book for the general public in language that anybody could understand. And it's a wonderful story in in many ways, just about how a person's life goes through and they discover these things and learn these things. And and the the simplicity of a backyard garden, Mm -hmm. how beneficial that is to us in terms of the environment and uh, saving resources and how much food it can produce and what that can mean and so on and so forth. So that's what the book Just One Backyard is about. I have a second book that I'm putting together and that I hope to have out by the end of this year. Ooh, and that's, do tell. Yeah, and that's for academia. That's going to be the one with all the hard data and the analysis and the nuts and bolts and all that stuff. So, so well, hold on here before, you go past, before we go past that. Um, 
you said it's for academia, but earlier before we started the show, you told me about the book and it was like, hold on, I'm not in academia, although I've got a couple of degrees um, and I'd be interested. So tell us a little bit about what the second book's about as well. Yeah, what's coming up is a book that has a solid background in urban agriculture and describing what is it, what are the many different ways that it's practiced, and then sort of contrasting the difference between commercial and non-commercial agriculture mm-hmm. in cities. Um, commercial agriculture, people predominantly do it to make a profit. Right. Non-commercial agriculture is mostly about the intangible benefits. It's not about uh, the dollar value. It's about connecting with people connecting with their heritage through their food. It's about the enjoyment of having their hands in the soil and growing things and other stuff like that. So the book will describe and contrast those differences, and then it will also talk about uh, how beneficial our urban food-growing efforts are, and it'll get down the paths of urban ecology. And here's some numbers on how beneficial and the ways that urban food gardens are beneficial to the urban ecology and then to environmental things such as how much water does an urban food garden save over irrigated lawn oh yeah that's um, a great question yeah down here in south florida my little backyard food garden about a thousand square feet Uh with all the pathways and such that saves about 40,000 gallons of year of gallons of water per year as compared to if I had irrigated lawn that was irrigated according to the state of Florida guidelines for responsible lawn. So when we start to calculate those numbers up on just one garden and just one backyard and you multiply that by, say, a 1,000 people doing that or 10,000 people doing that in a metro area, it starts to really become a big deal. That's, Um, That's an amazing piece of data there. And then other things like energy conservation and dioxide emission reduction. Uh, My one backyard food garden saved about six barrels of crude oil per year. Hmm. And how that's calculated is that because I was growing the food in my backyard rather than purchasing it from the grocery store, there was no carbon footprint and energy footprint associated with that, or at least a a minuscule one. Mm -hmm. So during my study, I would go to the store and I would price what the vegetables I was harvesting from my garden would have cost if I had bought them. And I was also looking at where the produce in the store was coming from. So if I grew a pound of green beans, I went to the store and I priced the green beans out. And then I also looked and saw where the green beans came from. So I could calculate how many miles the beans had traveled, and from that I could then calculate how much energy was required to transport them mm-hmm. and carbon dioxide emissions to the atmosphere occurred uh-huh. because of that transportation. So adding all of that up, at the end of the year, my one garden saves about six barrels of crude oil. And I know a lot of people are thinking, okay, six barrels of crude oil, what does that mean? What that means is it's enough energy if you were to burn that oil in a generator to power the average uh, American household for one year. So the the outfall from that is Uh you can spend $25,000 to $35,000 putting solar panels on your roof 
to save the energy or the fuel to run your home for a year. Mm-hmm. But the equivalent amount of savings can come from one backyard food garden just by eating local. Wow. That's a pretty powerful piece of data, especially when you have when you have the numbers to back it up. Indeed. And then the carbon dioxide emissions on top of it, oh, yeah. um, about 2,800 pounds of carbon dioxide emissions not happening because the food was grown in my backyard as opposed to being trucked in. So, okay, that's one person. But again, if we look at perhaps a thousand people doing this in a metro area, you start to see how the numbers really accumulate and they become significant. And when you think about the victory gardens from World War II, there were around 34 million of them, and they produced half of this country's food at that time. When you start to look at how much energy and carbon dioxide emissions we have today because those are no longer in production, you start to realize how something like the Victory Garden program is intimately intertwined with our efforts to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and to save energy and reduce our dependency on fossil fuels. Plus, you haven't touched on the food security issues yet. Yeah, food security. In my backyard garden, uh, over a three-year period, I was averaging around 1,800 pounds of food. Per year. So when you look at that, uh, the value of that was around four to $5,000 per year, mm-hmm. I believe. And when you look at a lower-income family, and over a 10-year period, that can amount to an awful lot of food and a lot of savings to their budget, somewhere in the order of twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a year over a 10-year period. And when you extrapolate that out over a 30-year period, which is the average length of a home loan, that's enough money to buy a home, a modest home, cash. I was going to say that was enough money to pay for the house, right? Exactly. Wow. So you can see how something that nickel and dimes us on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. right? A dollar here, a couple of dollars there, a few dollars over there for food. When you start to grow it yourself, it's, it's pennies in a piggy bank. Right. But over a period of time, it really accumulates. Interesting. Interesting. And all of this data is in your book. What I just mentioned to you here is uh, the framework of that, and those ideas and concepts are in the book that's currently out. Got it. But the book that's coming out later this year will have the hard data and all the hard numbers and all of the references and kinds of things that science people would hire to have to back it all up. But it's there, and I have promised to release all of my raw data to the public for them to chew on if they wish or for academics to chew on or data Mm -hmm. companies to chew on. Uh, When I release this second book, uh, I'm going to throw it all out there into the public domain because that's where it belongs. People need to talk about these things. And we need to get graduate students and university departments to start studying urban agriculture as seriously as rural commercial agriculture is being studied. Wow. That's a powerful statement. So what do you feel are some of the most important findings from your research? 
I think that probably the most important thing is that the greatest problems humanity is facing today and the greatest problems that are threatening humanity today are not the result of one single catastrophic or serious thing. It is the cumulative impact of millions and billions of small, little actions that have combined themselves into one large threat. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, it actually does. So what is that one large threat? Well, when we think about our food supply, by 2040, the United Nations have said uh, in one of their planning documents that the extent of urbanized area on the face of the earth between 20, the year 2000 and 2040, the extent of urbanized area on earth will triple. Wow. And that's equal to the area of the continent of Africa. That's a lot of natural habitat that we're going to lose. Wow. To yeah, urban. no kidding. We already have species teetering on the edge of, of extinction. Mm -hmm. And we are constantly losing prime farmland as urban areas expand. During that period of time, by 2050, we're expecting 2 billion more people on Earth. That is the same number of people that was, that was on Earth in 1950s, during the 1950s. So all the people that were on Earth in the 1950s, we're going to add that many people again on Earth by 2050. Where are we going to get all the land for all the agriculture to feed to all feed of these? Them. Yeah. We've got to turn our agricultural systems away from rural areas, stop cutting down and plowing under natural lands for more agriculture, and turn our agriculture into our cities. We've got to keep our, the natural habitat that we have. It provides us clean air, clean water, and environmental goods and services that mm -hmm. we can't live without. So that, I think, is probably the single most threat to humanity and the, the most important thing that we can do is learn how to grow our own food. Learn how to grow our own food, but grow yeah. it in cities. Turn our cities into places that are more self-sustaining yeah. and that produce the products and goods that are consumed by the people that live within it. Perfect. So what are some of the more interesting things that you have seen as you've traveled and seen other people's food gardens? The, the vast variety that's out there. I stopped in Chattanooga, Tennessee a couple of years ago. And when I looked up community gardens in Chattanooga, I found one called the Heart Giving Gallery Community Garden right on Main Street. Oh, nice. So I went over and looked at it. And it was beautiful. It was a bunch of raised beds, and they had all been decorated with really funky designs. One was all seashells, and another was were all corks from wine bottles, and another were all glazed ceramic tiles. There were all these mosaics on the outside of these beds. It was very decorative. It was really pretty. Um, it was next to the Heart Giving Gallery. So I went into the gallery, and the salesperson was there, and was looking around at the art, and there was some very interesting stuff on the walls. And she explained to me what was going on. And it was something that by the time she got done explaining to me about the Heart Giving Gallery, I couldn't speak. 
I was too emotionally touched at that point that there was nothing that I could say. It turns out that this place was set up to be an art studio for people who were homeless or mentally disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. So they would allow, they would open their doors up and they would let the homeless and the mentally disabled to come in, do artwork, and then they would give them gallery space to sell their artwork to make money. Wow. And they also worked the garden. Uh-huh. And they fed them from the garden. And it was touching to me because that community garden gave the homeless something that is most associated with the home. And that is a vegetable garden. Mm. So that was just one example of the kinds of ways that people have used community gardens to improve the community and to find creative ways of meeting needs in the community that would otherwise not be met. It was just a, a really beautiful story. And there's many other stories uh, as well, but that was one that just sticks out in my mind. So your book is Just One Backyard, One Man's Search for Food Sustainability. Where can our listeners find it? Well, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble online, and mm -hmm. other places like that. It is available through uh, your local bookstore. If you walk in and tell them you want it, they can order it for you through Ingram or other book supplier, suppliers or dealers that they deal with and through wholesale. Perfect. So Perfect. it's widely available that way. And uh, I am doing a circuit of book signing events around uh, from time to time here in Florida and other places. So keep an eye on my website, uh, www.justonebackyard.net, and you'll see my listing of events there. And if you show up at one of the events, you can buy a book from me and I'll sign it for you. Oh, perfect. Cool. So, yeah. And if, if you want a signed book and I'm not around your area of the country, you can uh, drop me an email and send me a check or something like that, and I will mail you a book uh, that's signed. Awesome. All right, cool. So I want to shift now and talk about a time you failed and how you overcame that failure, what you learned from it. Sure, and this is in my book, uh, Just One Backyard, One Man's Search for Food Sustainability. When I decided to turn my backyard into a big food garden, it was thrilling. It was exciting because when I, when I looked at what I was about to do and I, I could see how it could be really important. And if it was done right and if it was successful, it would give me, give me, give me some just really neat data that nobody's ever had before. And, and it's always neat because you're, you're like, you feel like you're cutting into a new frontier and you're learning things nobody's ever seen before and, and all of that. So I, I start with my garden and I, I'm actually mentioned I'm from Iowa, and so most of my gardening background is from Iowa. And being in South Florida, this is not Iowa. And right. I set out to plant very much like I would have planted if I was in Iowa, and that mm -hmm. was a big mistake. And things didn't do so well the first season. So the second season, I uh, expanded the garden out, and I decided I was going to really throw myself into this, learned from my mistakes the first season but the second season I invested myself as much as I could and it was a massive failure the reason wasn't my fault it was just this strange set of circumstances we had record heat we had record cold we had 
uh, four nights of frost that killed just about everything in the garden. And we grow here in the winter, not the summer, a lot of the vegetables that you're familiar with uh, in the temperate climates. So it killed most of the garden off, these prolonged frosts. I had covered everything with every rag or box or <laughs> blanket I could find in the house, and that wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so between the record heat, the record cold, and then we also had uh, record drought. Mm -hmm. And then to throw on top of that, we had a hurricane. Oh. <laughs> so that season by all you know measures was a grand <laughs> success <laughs> it was a grand failure but yeah. it was a grand success because i did still produce hundreds of pounds of vegetables somehow and that told me the minimum amount <laughs> rather than yeah. the maximum amount i could squeeze yeah. out of this thing so uh what i learned was how to adapt there were challenging circumstances and how I adapted is I started to abandon the food palette that I was familiar with. Mm. Here in South Florida, we have a lot of immigrants from around Central, from Latin America, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. And they have brought their food plants with them. And a lot of them are tropical. And they really are adapted to this climate far better than the suite of vegetables that we're all familiar with from our American diets. And so when I had these big failures because of the heat and the drought and the hurricane and all of that stuff, I started to turn my attention to these other food plants from these other cultures and a whole new door opened up. There were all kinds of things that people in those cultures who already lived in a climate like this and was subjected to these kinds of extremes in temperature and rainfall, they already knew how to deal with these things. And they had been dealing with them their whole lives, and they had a bounty of information to share and to teach us here about all these new plants and these new food types. And even to eat parts of plants that I wasn't familiar with, I would grow sweet potatoes, and I ate the potato. Mm -hmm. And they would say, no, we don't care about the potato. We eat the leaves. Right. And someone else would be growing squash, and they would be eating the, the flowers and the leaves off the squash, and they didn't really care so much about the fruit. It was where they got seeds from. Totally different from what I, I was familiar with. So it just opened up this whole new food palette for me that I would never have been familiar with. Yeah. Well, and that goes to observation. You know, you just need to observe what's happening around you and who's who's doing what. How yes. cool is that? So what do you consider your biggest success? Biggest success was actually completing all this work uh, <laughs> and yeah. writing it up and sharing it with other people. It's so easy to get involved in some kind of a large project like this and to just give up or to take it all the way down to the 10-yard line and not carry it through into the touchdown. And so I persisted and persisted and persisted, and I wasn't going to give up until I pushed it across the finish line and got it out there. And I'm still pushing. I still have a lot of work to do to get my data finalized and cleaned up to where when it goes out, it goes out and it's squeaky clean and it will stand up and I'll never have to to question whether any of it wasn't wasn't done properly. Right. So there's still a fair way to go, but I'm just I'm so happy that I stuck with it and that to me was is what success is is not giving up. Yeah. Perfect. So do you have your PhD? I do. I finished it uh, back in 2013. So that's what 3 years ago now. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So what drives you? What's your See, big why? 
my big why, why I do this. It's in my blood. Mm. I, I love looking at data and analyzing data. I love growing food. This is one way to just combine two passions that I have. Yeah. But I can really, I, I, that's me too. I mean, why do I do what I do? Because I have to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I'm all about education and I have to know, is there one book that has been really influential in your gardening process? Yes, there is. And unfortunately, it's out of print. And I picked it up one day at a library book sale for a dollar. Wow. And I thought it had an interesting title. Uh, I'm a plant ecologist and I've had uh, my bachelor's and master's degree were focused on plant physiology and biology. So the name of the book is called My Weeds by Sarah Stein. And I thought it was an interesting title. And so I sat down and read the book and it was one of those books where it connected a lot of dots for me. Here was somebody who was able to take all of these things that I mostly already knew mm -hmm. and knit them together into a complete picture, into a complete constellation. And that was the neatest thing. She talked about buying a home out in the country and fighting the weeds out there. And then she started to look at the weeds in a different way and started to embrace them in terms of where did they come from and why do they behave the way they do and what is their history. And it completely changed her mind about what a weed is and all of that. Um, so that was a very that was one of the books I never forgot. A very interesting book. So I'd highly recommend that book to others. Interesting. It looks like it's available on Amazon. I was just checking. That sounds interesting. Awesome. Perfect. And she's got a follow up book to that called Noah's Garden. Hmm. Perfect. Our, our backyard gardens can be like arcs of diversity, as the world around us loses diversity. Fantastic. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Grow your own food. And I know that many of you don't have any idea how to do it or where to start. That's the role that your community gardens, your urban farms, and your local agricultural extension agent fill. That's what they're there for. Mm -hmm. They're the interface between all of the local knowledge about how to grow things and you, the general public, who might not know how to. So grow your own food, find your community gardens, visit them, and talk to people and say, what works, what doesn't work? When do you grow? What do you grow? How do you grow? These people are enthusiastic and yeah. love to share this information. Yeah, that is the case. So, and I'm also going to throw a pitch in here for Urban Farm U. We offer all kinds of online classes Absolutely. as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, John. It's been a treat chatting with you. All the same. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you, number one, and find your book, number two? Let's just revisit that. Okay. I'm at justonebackyard.net or justonebackyard.com, either one. So mm -hmm. that's J-U-S-T-O-N-E-B-A-C-K-Y-A-R-D.net. And you'll find my contact information there. You'll be able to look through the site, 
for several years while I was doing the research project, every single month I posted pictures of the garden, what I was growing, what I was planting, what I was harvesting. So you'd be able to see through the years all the stuff that I've done, as well as other information. And there's also how to get my book on there as well, which you can pick up uh, through the website or you can pick up through your local bookseller or online through Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Perfect. And I'm going to actually throw a curveball at you because I realized there was one question that I want answered that I didn't ask you. So right here at the end, I'd like you to tell us, how did you fix a backyard of sand to make it grow food? (laughs) Well, careful what you ask for. Um, It was one more, yet one other piece of data that I collected. Yes, pure sand. I uh, had the fortune of working at a state agency at the time and they had a small cafeteria and by small I mean our campus had a couple of hundred employees on it and the cafeteria was there for their breakfast and lunch Monday through Friday and that's all so I went in one day and asked them if they would set aside the compostable materials for me I was afraid to do this because they were tight on staff and I was certain that they were going to say no it's going to take us more time and we're not getting anything out of it But to my shock and surprise, the manager said, sure. She said, we were just ordered by our regional manager that we're supposed to separate out the vegetables and we're supposed to weigh those every day and measure them because they want to know how much waste we have. And they're going to compare that against how much we purchased to see if we are wasting too much by cutting too much off of our trimmings. And I said, you set them aside. I will do the weighing for you and the measuring, and I will give you the numbers. So it was win-win. The outfall from that is I was able to take in over one ton of compostable materials each year from that cafeteria and turn that into very high-quality compost into my garden. What, at the end of, what that meant at the end of the year is that I kept almost 400 cubic feet of material out of our landfill each year. Right. And when I started to measure how much garbage I was putting out versus how much I was bringing in and composting, I was taking in seven times more garbage than I was setting out for pickup. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So you can imagine, again, in a metro area, if you had a thousand people doing this, it would really take a lot away from what we're sending to our landfills. Yeah. Wow. Perfect, perfect, perfect way to end the podcast. Thank you so much once again. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much, Greg. I do appreciate it. Absolutely. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org, Or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids 
to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.